If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 615. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Where there, give me, a, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Purchase one or 20 classes there. You keep this podcast free of charge. You also get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you enroll. You can also support it by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. Keep the lights on. Help keep the podcast going. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. What do you want to hear? I want to know. I may not respond back to you, but you may just get your show on, your idea, I should say, on the Brian McClanahan Show, which is great. You want that. And of course, always comment on the YouTube channel for the algorithm. Do all you can to get people listening to this show. This is a Think Locally, Act Locally episode because I'm going to talk about the issue of secession. So it's a big topic nowadays. Uh, There's no doubt about it. More people are talking about secession today than at any time since, in my estimation, since the 1860s. When I first became interested in just generally conversing about secession, I remember, I was an undergraduate, right? And I remember in college talking about these things with other people, and they looked at me like I was mad. I remember there was a, we were playing cards one night, and uh, there was a, a girl there, and somehow the Articles of Confederation got brought up. And I said, well, I mean, you know, the state should have more power. Oh my gosh, you believe in the Articles of Confederation. You don't believe in the central government. We need the central government. It does all these great... So, I mean, you have this impression. She was a conservative, quote-unquote. You have this impression that the central authority is necessary to do all these things, and yet all we ever get out of the central authority primarily is abuse. This is what we get. And so when you bring up this forbidden topic of secession until the last, say, 20 years or so, you would get all kinds of strange looks. But in 20 years, it's something that more and more people are talking about on the left and on the right. You've got the Kreitner book, Break It Up. You've got the Buckley book on secession. You, of course, have Kirk Sale. You've got Don Livingston. You've got a lot of people who have been talking about secession now for 20-plus years. And I think the impact of that is pretty substantial. More people are open to the idea more people are receptive to talking about it, even if they don't think it's a good idea, on all sides of the political spectrum. They're willing to at least entertain that it's possible, that it's something that could be legally done. This was the knee-jerk reaction. Well, that was settled by the war. Well, no legal question is really ever settled by a war. We can, we can look at it this way. I could steal your stuff, and you could beat me down, or vice versa. I could steal your stuff and beat you down. Would that make my theft legal? Right. So if I took what's yours, you said that's mine, give it back, that's illegal, and I beat you up and kept it. 
that that was it still was it legal or was it just because I forced you to accept my will that I took your stuff? Doesn't make it legal. It just this is what happened. So one one person says I'm leaving. You beat them down, force them to stay. Does it mean that what they were wanting to do was illegal? No, it just means that you beat them down. Now they have to stay. So it never resolved the legal question. We know Texas v. White, the Supreme Court decision, said that unilateral secession was illegal. Why would they do that? Why would the Supreme Court in the 1860s say that unilateral secession was illegal? Well, because that would invalidate the entire reasoning behind the war to begin with. But they did say that if Congress wants to remove a state, it's purely able to do so. Congress can vote to boot out a state. Now, why would they say that? Well, because at that point, you had, you had uh, military districts in the South where Congress had booted out states. So they're covering, they're providing cover for what the radical Republicans have done in Congress, and they're providing cover for the war. They're essentially taking Lincoln's position that the war never really happened, that uh, this was just a rebellion. These states were still in the Union, but now the war is over. The Congress can boot these states out, and say you're not really part of the union anymore. So the Supreme Court was providing cover, but this is, this is an opinion of the court. It doesn't mean that this is what the founding generation thought about secession. We know the founding generation thought, thought secession was perfectly legal. They thought it could happen anytime. 1794, you've got Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King cornering John Taylor in a cloakroom in the Senate saying, hey, look, it's time for the, for the United States, to go, it's time for the North to go. What do you think? And Taylor wrote, I'm, he was shocked. 1800, there's threat of secession over the election of Thomas Jefferson. There was actually talk about secession in 1798 to an extent. There were some rumblings about it, but not really anything substantial. But we did have nullification at that point. 1801, there's still talk about secession. 1803, there's talk about secession. <laughs> right? 1804, 1805, 18, in the War of 1812, 1814 and 15, there's talk about secession. All that, by the way, was from the North. We know that Virginia and New York had resumption clauses where they could get out of the Union if they wanted to. This is part of their con essentially a conditional ratification of the Constitution. Then, of course, we get to the 1830s and secession talk shifts from the North to the South, primarily because of tariffs at that point, because we have the North dominating the economy and the South is saying, no, 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 we don't like this. And so there's talk about secession then. By the way, I teach all of this at McClanahan Academy in my secession class. You, I, mean, I go into all this in more detail. And then, of course, you see this ramp up. And by the time we get to the 1860s, you actually have secession take place, 1860 and 61. And supposedly that was solved by war, but we know it wasn't. Now, this is why I say that the current time that more Americans are interested in the topic and at least receptive to it than any other time when you've got a quarter of the population or more who would say that they would entertain the idea of secession. It's a really interesting thing. And of course, the Front Porch Republic, which in by, by no means, it's, it's a kind of a, it's an agrarian website. I, I subscribe to their journal. It's interesting to read. You've got a lot of dis, disparate views there. You've got people that are on the left, like Wendell Berry. You've got people that are on the right, like Alan Carlson and others. You've got... Um, You've got kind of moderate people, but generally interested in an agrarian society. 
sort of libertarians. You've got people like Kirk Sale, who is a leftist, but he says he's not, but he is, but he's a secessionist. He, he's subscribed, reads the, reads the Front Porch Republic. You have really interesting people involved in this. A pastoral life, I think, is the best. Their journal's always filled with poetry. It's nice. It's a nice journal to read. They send it out quarterly, and it's 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 quite interesting. Um, and so in the spring journal, local culture, you have the journal title Civil Dissent. And the main discussion point here is secession. And the primary article is written, written by Bob Elder. Now, Bob Elder just wrote a book on Calhoun, which I... There's parts of it I like, but most of it I don't. And I think he does a disservice to Calhoun near the end of the book where he essentially says that John C. Calhoun is the reason we had the Emanuel Church shootings in 2015. That's a re- it's irresponsible statement. Irresponsible. Okay. Um, and so I have a problem, but I know why Elder does it. I know why all these, I know why Cynthia Nicoletti, for example, said, well, you know, I mean, all these arguments made in favor of secession, they're pretty strong arguments, but I don't believe any of it. I don't believe any of it. Well, she has to say that because if she doesn't say that, then she's not going to get a job in the academy. You have to say these things. So I don't fault Elder for doing this. He wants to sell books. He wants to be acceptable to a mainstream audience. But he does write this article for Front Porch Republic, which is vanilla. I mean, look, Front Porch Republic is a is vanilla organization in a lot of ways. They're not. They're interesting, right? I, I like them, but they're very vanilla. So Elder writes the lead article on secession, and then there's a series of responses to it, range from everything from Kirk Sale. Uh, to people talking about secession during, I mean, how COVID was a secession period, individual secession, state secession. There's people talking about all of this stuff. And people that I like to read, even people that I don't agree with, but they're good writers and I like to read them. So, But I want to get into Elder's conclusion of this particular essay, the title of which is Into the Whirlpool, and it is discussing secession. It's, it's a fairly long article. He says, Can a renewed or more explicitly acknowledged federalism keep us from the whirlpool of secession? Should we, all, we should all hope so, but what if we have already been sucked in? The worry, Heather Gherkin writes, is that our politics are quickly overtaking the institutions that were designed to channel them. Indeed, since Gherkin wrote this in 2017, one might argue that between the politics of COVID and the chaos of the 2020 election, her fears and the fears of David French have been fully realized, secession or not. After all, secession is only the political manifestation of a deeper problem, a breakdown in legitimacy and a crisis of sovereignty, of consent without which government of any kind cannot function. Secession is a result of this deeper crisis, not its cause or it's coincident. Therefore, it is only in hindsight that we'll be able to tell if, in these first months of 2022, we are already wandering in the dim shadows of the no-man's land that exists between the dissolving form of an old sovereignty and the coalescing form of the new. Now, one thing he says here that I think is important, and this is what Gherkin said, right? Um, 
is secession, are politics designed to channel them? Or, or is, is this politics are quickly overtaking the institutions that are designed to channel them? Now, what is the issue here? I mean, again, Elder points it out at the beginning. It's federalism. You see, with a loss of federalism, when and I talked about this last week, when the United States government in 1863 said it wanted to nationalize everything, essentially what was happening in 1863 is the complete destruction of the federal order. It took time, but by 2022, we've seen it. We've seen it. Now, what's happening in the last 20 years is a reaction to that by people like the 10th Amendment Center and the Abbeville Institute and even this essay in the Front Porch Republic and Law and Liberty and the Mises Institute and Chronicles Magazine and American Conservative and American Spectator. I mean, some of these, articles, some of these publications have had talks about secession or things they do with secession. The books, all of this conversation... And then you have political manifestations of this, like Texit and CalExit, and you have an Alaskan secession party. You have a wine secession being discussed. You have secession movements in the South. You have the, the Second Vermont Republic. You have talks about secession all over the United States. All of it is a reaction to the problems of nationalism. You see, again, nationalism is the great cancer. This is what was happening in 1860 and 61, it just took a little bit of time for the Republicans to recognize this is what they were trying to do. Now, everyone knew it, but to say it out loud, to say out loud the part that everyone knew was happening, nationalization of everything, is the real issue. Elder says, in the meantime, there is plenty we can do. In his excellent recent book, After Nationalism, the political scientist Samuel Goldman expresses skepticism about the possibility that our problems can be solved by following any blueprint, whether towards a renewed national identity or a diffused one. Dismissing the idea of a unified national identity as mostly a historical chimera and warning that efforts to renew a national identity are at best unpredictable and potentially dangerous, Goldman instead calls for us to live with the messy, frustrating plurality of American life, and instead to invest our energies and identity into much smaller communities of meaning and purpose. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like Brian McClanahan, <laughs> right? So, I mean, this is stuff I've been saying now for years, for years. And this is what people like Kirk Sale and Don Livingston and others. I mean, Kirk Sale's work on small states is tremendous, tremendous. And so I love that stuff. But um, this is, nationalism is the cancer. Nationalism cannot save America. No matter what the Trump people would say, make America great. And you've got the people out there, and I've talked about it on this show, that are certainly interested in revitalizing American nationalism and seeing it as the way forward. Well, I mean, we can't do, we can't do federalism because federalism is, is unworkable because we've already got the national apparatus and, of course, the 14th Amendment and other things make it impossible. Why? Why? If you had enough people... I mean, look, again, I'm encouraged by the discussion of secession. If you started pushing, we need to get the 14th Amendment out of the way. Maybe there could be a movement to repeal the most egregious effects of that. And this could be from the right. The 14th Amendment's a problem. Why do we support it? Let's get rid of it. Plus, it was never legally ratified to begin with. It wasn't a legal amendment. 
I find it fascinating. Dan Smoot in the 1960s, I talked about Dan Smoot last week. Dan Smoot pointed this out in one of his newsletters. Of course, Forrest McDonald did the exact same thing. There have been people that have talking about this since the 60s um, and really since the 50s. I mean, people have been talking about the dangerous side effects of the 14th Amendment for a long time. Why can't there be an actual push to get rid of the 14th? We talk about the 16th. We talked about the 17th. Why not the 14th? If you want some of the things that are there in the 14th Amendment, then make it clear what these things are going to do. He writes, quote, The smaller, more coherent groups, rather than abstractions of loyalty and solidarity, are the appropriate setting for cultivating particular virtues that we cannot reasonably expect more than 300 million people spread over much of a continent to share. In other words, he's saying that diversity is actually the enemy of nationalism. There can't be one American people. This is the exact same thing John Taylor of Caroline was saying. It's the exact same thing uh, Abel Upshur was saying. You can't have an American, one American people. It doesn't exist. It's like utopia for utopians. And what's happened since the 1860s is America has, has been uh, a round peg being trying to shoved into a square hole. The American nation, shove it into the square hole, right? Bam, 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 just hammer it over. This is the Republican Party of the 1860s slamming it into a square hole, a round peg, and it doesn't work. But yet we've lived with it. And there's been success with this thing at times, right? What about World War II? What about the American rah-rah and the Cold War? What about all that stuff? Was it really working, though? Or was that a very was that a blip in the American experience? In reality, wasn't what was working before that federalism? But you had the rabble-rousers, you had the Yankees, you had the people that were out there pushing an agenda. Wasn't that something different? Elder says, paradoxically, reinventing our identity in local institutions, local communities, local politics, and local environments may also be a push back to some form of a mutual feeling in our national politics. I actually, That's actually an interesting statement, but if we all thought about local first and the common cause was the local, then we would all have unify around a theme of federalism. There would be an identity there. Hey, look, I may not agree with you, Bob Elder, on this, this, and this, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to support your position to do what you want in Texas where you live, and I'm going to do what I want in Alabama where I live, or you can do what you want in Vermont, New Hampshire, whatever it is, California. Let's embrace the fact that Somebody somewhere else might be doing something you don't like, and let's get around that and say, let's have communities that reflect the political culture of the place in which we live. And you might live in a community because of work or other things that doesn't reflect your political culture. So you can move, right? Or you just got to deal with it. This is what a lot of people do. They just deal with some of these things. In a 2012 lecture for the National Endowment for the Humanities titled, It All Turns on Affection, the tutorly spirit of this publication Wendell Berry argued that our, our ability to imagine ethical or civic responsibilities to fellow human beings whom we will never meet can only exist as an extension of our affection for the unique qualities of the people, places, and communities where we live out our daily lives. Quote, By that local experience, he wrote, we see the need to grant a sort of preemptive sympathy to all the fellow members of the neighbors with whom we share the world. Engaging the world of politics is, of course, necessary if we want to make possible the sort of life life on a human scale that Barry advocates. But it may also be that in order to engage in politics properly, 
In order to answer rightly the momentous questions posed by our time, we need to first live in the world as it presents itself to us in the limited sphere, sphere I'm sorry, of our everyday lives. Now, Elder certainly is not advocating for secession. In fact, he's very much against it. But simply this recognition of the local, the local, more importantly, is the most important thing. And I really like that, right? I mean, it's, it's the whole theme of this show. It has been since I started doing it in 2016. And it has been even before I was doing that and writing everything I wrote. Before that point, before I started doing an actual podcast. So go out and get this, uh, the Front Porch Republic. It's local culture. Um, it's a really interesting publication. The rejoinders to this are, are fascinating. Some of them are really good. Some are okay, but uh, a diverse group of people, I mean, to say the least. And I think that I, I applaud the Front, Port, Front Porch Republic people for doing that, to having a pretty diverse crowd there. Um, and so... This question of secession is not going to go away. It's not going to go away, particularly if you see some economic difficulties, some foreign policy problems. People are going to want out. And all the other things, the woke cancel culture, that's forcing people to rethink these things. Even Bill Maher is rethinking this stuff, right? So that's a good thing. I think the left has overplayed their hand, and it's going to drive people into the local, and that's going to be a benefit for federalism moving forward. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>